TGIM, Timari. This is episode 316. Like when I get an urge or a craving, like, I'm okay. Like if I get through this, then I'm going to be like that much better the next time something like this creeps up. Awakening is a shift in consciousness in which thinking and awareness separate. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's show, we've got Paul. He took his last drink on February 29th, 2020. He is from Long Island and he is 30 years old. Before we get started, I want to let you know that one of our sponsors for our upcoming Bozeman retreat offered to extend a discount code to our listeners. So if you like apple cider vinegar shots and if you're trying to incorporate more herbs, spices and apple cider vinegar into your diet, you are going to love this product. It's called Firebrew. Firebrew is a concentrated all natural multivitamin in a bottle made from fruits, vegetables, herbs and spices. This line is designed to activate and keep your entire system cleansed and running at optimal speed. So if you want to see what I'm talking about, go check it out at mindyourmana.co. That's mindyourmana with two N's. I'm going to have Liz drop this link in the show notes. Mindyourmana.co and then check out with our discount code, which is RE10OFF. I personally really like the hibiscus flavored fire brew. And there's also an elderberry one, which is great for your immune system. There's a whole bunch. So go check them out. And if you try any of them, let us know. Thank you, fire brew, for sponsoring our Bozeman retreat. All right, let's work on finding your better you. Someone asked me the other day what the difference between being sober and being in recovery was. Are you automatically in recovery when you are pursuing sobriety? Do you have to be sober to have an in-recovery mentality? And although I have my own answer to this question that I'll cover later in this intro, I went ahead and did some definition research. Here's what I found. Sobriety is the condition of not having any measurable levels or effects from alcohol or other drugs. Sobriety is also considered to be the natural state of a human being given at birth. A person in a state of sobriety is considered sober. Recovery is a powerful period because beyond everything else, it signifies that you know you have a problem and you are trying to fix it. Recovery does not mean you fix your issues right away. It means you recognize something is wrong, which is a critical part of getting help. I'll have Liz link this source to the show note, the source where I found this article. It was a, I found it on a treatment center website. And anyway, what captured my attention after reading a bit more was what I found next. And here's the last little tidbit that I'm going to read off. It says, when you are in recovery, you feel kinship to those who are also in recovery, make decisions based on how it could impact your recovery, adjust friendships and relationships based on how they could affect recovery, and never let down your guard. So can you be sober but not in recovery? The answer is yes. For many, the first step towards this life is simply abstaining or attempting to abstain. Even with our many rules attempting moderation before trying to quit, we're trying some sort of abstaining technique, right? Maybe no drinks on weekdays, no drinks after I get home from a party, no drinks before a party. You get the memo. 
it feels like the solution purely becomes abstaining. So although you can achieve a state of sobriety with simply abstaining from alcohol, with time, we come to find that the key comes not just from being sober and abstaining, but from entering into this recovery mindset. And you don't have to be an alcoholic to live in this mindset. The mindset that allows you to grow and develop your self-awareness, the mindset that allows you to see beyond the surface and question things in your life like relationships and boundaries. So if you're a gray area drinker or someone who doesn't even know if they belong here because maybe you don't feel like you're alcoholic enough, I hope you know that recovery is for everybody. You have your seat at this table no matter what. Like the article noted, recovery is not just about being sober, but about being open to change and adjustments in your current life. It's about asking for help. These are scary things, of course, but that is why we keep blabbing on and on about community and how important it is. Because it is. Because when you're going through days where you are not just trying to not drink, but also maybe getting ready to have a hard conversation with a friend or a family member about new boundaries, well... You need support. We all do. I found that sometimes people enter sobriety because they have to. Like when your brother told you that he noticed that you're drinking way too much or your partner gives you an ultimatum. We abstain for periods of time to prove to our loved ones that we got this and that we can quit whenever we want. Don't get me wrong. Even these attempts are part of our recovery journey, even when you aren't ready to be in recovery yet. Recovery is a mindset. And although I understand that sometimes saying the phrase, I'm in recovery, seems daunting, it is also very much worthwhile. I feel like in owning my recovery, I have basically stepped into this amazing growth mindset. It's about so much more than just quitting drinking. I've learned to connect with others in different ways, not just with only my friends that have also ditched the booze, but also friends that are normal drinkers, but that also share this growth mindset. So... Where are you at with this? Are you ready to step into the arena of recovery? The dance floor is pretty full and we're all waiting for you. All right, eso es todo. And before we hear from Paul today, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe Ari almost immediately after I found it and was so surprised at the amount of grace support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things that I realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that truly understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across some bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of our monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use a promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. 
Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you all there. Paul, welcome. How are you today? Hey, Odette. I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm doing very well as well. It is Friday on the day of our recording, so I am excited to get this weekend kicked off after our conversation. I hear you. Same here. Same here. I'll be working, but it's still nice to have the weekend. That's awesome. And let's get right to it, Paul. When was the last time you had a drink? My last drink was February 29th, 2020. Leap year. Yeah, my logic was that if I don't have like a year anniversary, that wouldn't be like a temptation for me. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I thought it would be a nice, nice day to have the last drink. Oh, I love that. And can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, of course. So I'm from Long Island, New York. I currently live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I've lived out here for about five years now. I am a physical education teacher with the Department of Education here. I work in an elementary school, so I teach pre-K to five students. I'm also a personal trainer. I actually just opened up my own private personal training studio here in Brooklyn. So it's been an eventful couple months. Mm -hmm. I opened up a couple months ago now, about two months. And yeah, for fun, you know, I'm a stereotypical like kind of fitness person. So a lot of training. I've been trying to broaden my horizons and sobriety a little bit. So I have a little drum kit I play with. I try to get outside of nature as much as I can. But being in Brooklyn, there's not a ton of stuff here. But Prospect Park is nice. And yeah, that's about it. Congrats on opening your business, especially in the middle of COVID craziness. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a way to adapt, you know, so all the gyms closed down and um, I didn't really pursue my, my training too much at that point just because, you know, I was lucky enough to be getting a paycheck still from the DOE. But then, yeah, it really didn't seem like things were going to go back to how they were. So I thought it might be a good opportunity to kind of adapt to the time. So the space I opened up is like, you know, marketed as super COVID friendly. We only have one person, one trainer in the space at a time, cleaning before, during and after, temperature checks, air ventilation, like, you know, the whole nine. Wow, that's amazing. I really get inspired by people who see really difficult, uncontrollable events as a a situation or an opportunity to innovate. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. That, that's nice of you to say. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was definitely a pivot. You know, you kind of, the only constant is change, you know, so we definitely have to learn to adapt. A hundred percent agree, Paul. And can you give listeners some background on your history with drinking? When did you start? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And just tell me your story. Sure. So I started drinking kind of like regular time, I would guess, um, towards the end of high school, like 17, 18 years old. My first thing really wasn't alcohol, though, it was cannabis. So I was like one of the dawn to dusk types, like, you know, wake up, smoke weed all throughout the day. So that was a lot of high school. And then when I got to college, I joined a fraternity and kind of weed was still the main thing. But obviously, you know, drinking became more apparent. I started drinking a little bit more. And then as I got older to like my mid 20s or so, I kind of saw a shift where marijuana wasn't really serving me anymore. Like I was getting like kind of the stereotypical things people associate that with, right? Like I was getting like paranoid and the munchies and insomnia Mm -hmm. and just really wasn't doing it for me anymore. And that's when drinking kind of took over and I started drinking more. And that's when it kind of became a problem. But I think it's really, you know, one thing I've really learned in my sobriety is that it's, uh, it's but a symptom, right? So I realized that I had a lot of things that happened when I was a kid that really contributed to my substance abuse problems. My father overdosed when I was young. 
when I was 12 years old. My mom's a recovering alcoholic. She's at 12 years sober now, which is really awesome. It's nice to have her with me on the journey. And yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of things that resulted from, you know, issues with my mom and my dad, I think kind of really contributed to my substance abuse problems. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry for your loss. And I appreciate your your openness. It's hard to talk about these things and how they contribute to our own trauma and processing and pain. Do you feel like when you started using and I know it was primarily weed at first, did you know that you were just trying to cope or escape from this pain? It sounds like tragedy in the family started fairly early on. So how was that chunk of your life? Like, were you how was your childhood outside of that? Were you you're you an extrovert an introvert? I feel like I know you from the groups and I consider you just to be a very open person. But tell me a little bit more about your process growing up. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think I'm I'm more of an extroverted person. And I, I somewhat attribute it to that. Like, I'm pretty open with, you know, my childhood and experiences and stuff. I feel like it really helps me cope with it. But yeah, my childhood wasn't great. My dad passing, like I said, when I was young, and my mom's drinking was difficult. What kind of compounded the problem with my mom was that when her problem kind of hit its height, she had just had a baby. So she remarried a few years after my father passed. So they were divorced when I was young. And then when I was like 15, 16 years old, she remarried and she had a baby. And then after she had the baby, the postpartum depression just like hit her like a ton of bricks. So she went from a pretty like functioning alcoholic, you know, have some wine at the end of the day, maybe a little too much to just like, she just like drowned in it. You know, she would just like lock herself in a room and just, you know, just, just shut herself off to the world. And, you know, having a newborn baby in the house and that was going on made things difficult. You know, there are a lot of occasions where, I would have to take my brother and take him to my grandparents' house next door because she wasn't in any kind of state to take care of him, but she thought she was, and and, and it led to some conflicts and stuff like that. It kind of hit a climax when uh, my stepdad just kind of had it with mm-hmm. it. You know, I was old, I was young, so I was a little naive in how to deal with those matters, and I would always try to like take the bottle from her hand and stuff like that. And you know, he always told me he's like, "Listen, she's got to want to stop. She's not going to do it." You know. And he just kind of hit his wits end with it. And he locked her in a room, tied her up and gave her a bucket to piss in and pretty much was just like, get sober. He kind of lost his temper. And my mom managed to get to a phone and she called the police. And then she kept calling me to come home. I didn't want to come home because I knew she was drunk. But then she called me like several times. So I eventually picked up the phone and I came home to police cars, taking my stepdad out handcuffs. And then I came home the police support and everything like that. And, um, you know, the worst part was they left and she kept drinking. But uh, but not long after that, she checked herself into inpatient. And like I said, she got sober. So she hasn't touched a drink in about 12 years. But um, but in the midst of that, I, I found boxing, which is really like my main thing. It's really what I love to do. And I really think it, uh, it kind of got me through that event. I had my first match when my mom was in inpatient. So not long after the... Um, the incident I just described. But it was really my escape. The gym was really close to my house. I was able to walk there from home after school. And I just kind of buried myself in it. You know, I found real solace in it. And yeah, and and from that point, fitness kind of played a really big part in my life. You know, it really helped me to kind of battle those demons, you know, to really kind of balance out my addictive tendencies, I would say. I, I really think if I didn't find boxing, and, you know, later in life, just really embraced uh, working out and stuff like that, that my issues would have became much more severe. And I don't think I'd be talking to you right now. Yeah. 
I'm so glad you found boxing. I I want to talk a little bit more about your journey with fitness a little bit more into the interview, but I I agree with you. I I think for many people that outlet of not just boxing but exercise is such a solace and such a good uh, like balancing activity to our addictive brain. So your story is so powerful, Paul. And I once again want to thank you for sharing parts of it that are really raw and probably hard to sit with talking through, like what happened with your mom and your dad. And and, and coming from a family where there, my father is an addict as well. I want to ask you if, from what you mentioned of of trying to help and sometimes having to take care of your brother. Do you notice that you developed caretaking, um, like caretaking aspects to your personalities because of your mom's struggle? And I'm only asking this because it happens to a lot of us adult children of alcoholics. And I'm just curious of the traits that developed in your personality from being in this household. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I never thought of that, but, you know, I'm I'm a elementary school teacher now, so mm-hmm. perhaps it did. Yeah, I definitely would think so. I, I, I always, you know, I, I try to go out of my way to help people whenever I can, Um, especially with the fitness stuff. You know what I mean? I'm always trying to like, you know, in, in like a non like kind of douchey way, you know what I mean? Like kind of like give people a hand and give people tips and stuff. I do try to like go out of my way to help people out for sure. Yeah, it, it's it's been very interesting for me. And I, I've been sharing with some close friends in recovery to see um, the traits that adult children and alcoholics develop. Some of them are not some of them are not very good. Some of them I'm trying to accept that uh, we're not perfect, but I think it's very interesting. And I'm always curious to talk to people who have similar dynamics. And it's it's equally powerful because, I mean, you and I were raised completely different. I come from Mexico. My dad is also over a decade sober. And I think it's so cool to see how our whole family can recover together, right? Like your mom's doing it, you're doing it. And if we zoom out, you can see how that's changing the trajectory of your ancestry, which is really cool. Do you ever think about that? Oh, yeah, 100%, 100%. Like one big driving factor, and I think that led me to make the decision to quit drinking is I didn't ever want my mom. I love my mom. Like my mom is one of my favorite people and she did an amazing job. You know, she was a single parent forever. She managed to like buy a house on Long Island and, you know, but I had to see her do some pretty bad things and see her at some pretty low points, you know, and I just like, I never wanted to be that, you know, I, I never wanted my kids, like when I have children to like see me too drunk or, or anything like that. And, and like in, in meetings and things like that, like I feel bad thinking this way sometimes, but I hear people tell stories like that where their kids saw them or their kids found them passed out or something like that. And I just really feel like I couldn't forgive myself if something like that happened to me. So yeah, just best to get ahead of it, you know? Yeah. It's a great motivator. Um, We were talking the other day also about what keeps you going. Someone asked me what keeps you going once you hit the milestones, like the one year, once it, once it gets kind of ordinary and boring and you're not going through this first year of, highlights and making it through sober checkpoints and and my answer was like you have to have a bigger why right like a bigger motivation and I'm really glad you have that and I also want to touch upon the fact I think what happens with us who have parents who struggled is that we learn to see our parents as humans like every human has struggles instead of this superhero mentor that's flawless I don't know I like I like knowing that I don't have to be perfect because I'm a mom already and I'm like 
you know, I'm already in recovery and I'm hoping that I don't have to have my kids see what I saw with my dad. But at the same time, I know I'm going to fail at some other thing. And it, and I just hope that they see me like how you described, like as a human trying the best that we could. And that doesn't mean we're perfect, right? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, there, there's two sides to the coin. You know, like, I try to look at it too, like, it kind of like, like hardens you. You know what I mean? Like, life's not easy. Like, life is, is rough business. You know, it's it's no wonder people end up addicted, or they end up, you know, with, with the various problems that we encounter. But kind of like what you, you, you touched upon, if you find like that bigger picture, if you find that why, it's just, you know, it's your sense of meaning, and it can help you to, to overcome those things. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. Life is definitely complicated, especially in 2020. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious, for sure, for sure. It's been, it's been quite the year. And that's when I quit drinking. It's funny, my last drink was the first confirmed case of COVID in New York City. Wow. So that's, that's kind of funny. I thought, yeah, yeah. So tell me, you, you found boxing that was helpful, but then talk to me about the progression of your chapter in fitness, which you discovered, and then the progression of your drinking. They had to be working at a parallel at some point, and then you decided to stop drinking. So how was your life? Like you, you sounds like you were functional. I mean, functional enough to go boxing and, and just live your life. But walk, walk me through this decision of finally quitting. What happened? What has, what was becoming unmanageable for you and I, I wanted to go back a bit because I felt like I kind of like glossed over and gave like a very big picture so yeah so going back so when I got to college too I also started experimenting with other drugs which you know obviously isn't great I would do some cocaine ecstasy different things like that and those started to kind of play a role in my life I was always super duper cautious because I don't know if you got this speech from your your parents from like you know coming from addictive parents but I, my mom always 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 preached to me like be really careful. We're trying different things. You might be different. Just watch yourself, watch yourself. And I, and I attribute that to kind of why I'm so into fitness now, because it's just like another outlet, right? But yeah, when it, when it started to turn was when I think it became a problem, but I didn't really realize it was a problem, was when I went away to, um, I did a semester abroad in England. And so I went away to England because I kind of hit a, a little bit of a low point in college. I'd broken up with a girlfriend. I had another like the girl I dated after that, I had like a rough going with that. Like it kind of was like really into her and didn't come through and, you know, you're in college. So that's the end of the world when that happened. So, but yeah, I was having like a rough time of it. And then I felt like I needed to change. I needed to shake it up. And I decided to go to England and do a semester there. And I was really excited about that. I, I went there. I did the whole process to get over, which was like a year. I played rugby and it was cool. It was great. But I definitely didn't get the most out of the trip because of my drinking. I think that's when my drinking kind of really took a turn. And like, like I kind of mentioned earlier, like drinking kind of replaced the, the marijuana in a sense because I couldn't really get it over there, but I could get a drink anyway. So drinking started to really kind of take over. And then when I came back from England, I started bartending, which was my main job for six years. And I really just kind of embraced that scene started doing more cocaine, which really, again, isn't good. And yeah, and then I graduated from college. And then I had a few more losses. Um, I lost my best friend to an overdose as well. And then not too long after that, I lost my uncle, he was hit by a drunk driver. And it was my godfather. So my, my dad's brother, my dad was the youngest of nine, that my uncle Hank, who I'm referring to now was the oldest of nine. And he kind of like he took the reins when my dad passed, you know, so that, that was really hard. And then I didn't realize it. But I was like, really, 
kind of broken up over that. I was like drinking through that a little bit. You know, I was depressed over those two losses and they were really close to each other. My friend Anthony passed in December of 2014, I believe it was. And then my uncle passed that following July. So they were pretty close within six months of each other. And then, yeah, I was living in Buffalo. So I went, that's where I went to school. I went to school at Buffalo State University, which on top of it, if anybody, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people say this, like, oh, it's so hard to drink where I'm from. But like Buffalo is like a drinking city. That's, that's really the, uh, the only thing to do up there. There's other stuff, but it's, it's a big drinking culture. So yeah, so I was living up there and bartending and just like, just boozing. You know, I was just partying. I was just having a fun time. I was being irresponsible. And then I kind of just more or less ran out of money. Like I wasn't being responsible. I wasn't taking care of myself. I lost a bartending job because I showed up like an hour late and drunk and I just wasn't doing the right thing. And I ended up moving home back to Long Island, which was was a bummer. You know, I kind of felt like a loser. I had to move back home. I was like 24 years old at the time. And, you know, I felt like I was going backwards a little bit. And then I was living at home and I was living at home. I was bartending. I was saving money. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then one evening, my mom and I got into a big fight because I was supposed to take my mini medical exam for the NYPD. So I was just taking all the civil service exams I could just to try to, you know, get a career, get on the right path, Mm -hmm. something like that. And I just didn't want to be a cop. I didn't think I'd be a good cop. I didn't want to quit smoking weed either, which kind of contributed to that. So her and I just like kind of had it out, went out, had some drinks, was on the way home, got pulled over, got a DWI. And that was that was definitely like a rock bottom moment for me. I was locked up for a good 24 hours. You know, it was, it was, it was shitty. It was, it was really bad experience. I remember I got pulled over, cop pulled me over. And as soon as he opens the window, he goes like, Oh, it smells like marijuana in this car. It's like, oh man, it's like, you know, not a good foot to start off on. And it took a minute for it to hit. It was like a half an hour of like outside the car. I was like, I'm about to go to jail. This is, you know, this is serious. And I started, you know, I'm a little bit of a talker. So I started trying to like talk my way out of it. Um, My boxing coach was a Suffolk County police officer who he knew I threw his name out there. And yeah, I was starting to turn him a little bit. I was just trying to talk my way out of it. And he was like, where do you live? And I was like, oh, I live right here. I live right at the place that I can walk home. And I could tell he was kind of close. And then uh, another cop car pulled up. And they asked me to blow. And I said, I don't want to blow. And then the cop kind of sat me down. and was like, listen, if you blow like a .10, I can get you out of here. But like, if you don't blow, I can't help you. So I blew like just over that, got arrested. I had to deal with all that stuff. But then I kind of turned things around. You know, I remember as soon as I got out of being locked up. So it was like about 24 hours. I immediately went home. I didn't shower. I didn't eat. I just started applying to graduate programs. I always had the idea of being a teacher. I've always been good with kids. Obviously, phys ed kind of lends itself to that. So I started applying to programs. And then I got accepted into this really awesome program where my master's degree was paid for through a nonprofit organization. So I worked for the nonprofit organization in an elementary school, like just doing recess. I was like a coach. And that paid for my master's and it was a physical education degree. So I was like, awesome, you know, this is, this is the one. So I got into that program and I moved out to New York city, which was like, you know, a big thing. So like Long Island is like suburbs, it's like kind of regular, yeah. you know, and then I it moved was out like a, it. it was like a milestone to move to New York city, but I want to interrupt you to ask, were you drinking this whole time still? After I got a DUI? Yeah. Like once you moved and you started kind of getting your shit together, were you like, oh, I can just drink responsibly? Yeah. So I definitely, I've always done, I've done good with the full plate. I kind of realized that, you know, like when, when I'm busy and I have a lot of things going on, I won't drink as much because I feel like I have to meet those responsibilities. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I was still drinking, but like not nearly as much, especially after the DUI, you know, I definitely like, I, you know, I took, I think like a month off. That was kind of always my moderation technique is I'd like take some time off or like, especially with boxing, like if I had a fight, you can't drink before. So I'd take like, you know, a month, six weeks, whatever that is. 
And yeah, so then I moved to New York and that, and that was a big thing, but I kept drinking, but like I said, I was too busy. So especially when I moved to New York, I was doing a master's program. I was working Monday through Friday in an elementary school. When I moved there, I had three jobs just because I, you know, I looked everywhere I could for a job. And then I got a bartending job, a personal training job, and a catering bartending job, which didn't last that long. I ended up narrowing down to just the one bartending job. And yeah, I was just kind of like too busy to really have drinking be an issue at that point, if that makes sense. And then during that time, I was doing my master's program that's when I kind of started personal training and making a business for myself. So then I graduated from my master's program and I decided to give the personal training like a shot. Like I wanted to become a teacher, but I decided to give the personal training a shot. So I was going to give myself a year to like train myself and build up my business. And then I ended up getting an umbilical hernia, which is like a pretty mild thing, but I couldn't train. So yeah, but, and it also, I I lost a lot of business, you know what I mean? Cause I couldn't, I can train myself, but I couldn't train clients, you know? So that kind of led to another rock bottom moment because I was training, I was getting all ramped up and then like I couldn't train people. So my business suffered. I couldn't train myself. So I couldn't get ready for a fight. So I was kind of depressed. So started drinking a lot. And then New Year's 2017 was kind of a rock bottom too. I, I, I picked up a bartending shift where I used to work and I drank like a six pack before I went out to the bartending shift and just like super duper drunk. Don't remember. I ended up just like walking out of the shift. I woke up in the morning. I lost my phone. I lost my wallet. I had like no money to my name. And I was just like lost. Like I didn't know what to do with myself, you know? And um, I ended up calling my mom and she had to come pick me up. And, you know, I was just like, I didn't know what to do with myself. Like I thought I didn't know what to do. And um, that was kind of comparable to the DWE. You know, I realized that I wasn't doing the right thing and I had to kind of turn things around. So that's when I started pursuing my teaching certification. So I had my master's in phys ed, but it was like a non-certification degree. So I started figuring out the credits I needed to get the certification. And again, like kind of too busy to have it be an issue. Um, I'm curious at this point, did you think that by, by adding things to your plate, you could, you could kind of remove yourself from these rock bottom movements? Like, do you think that was a logical that you were living with at that time? Like instead of sobriety, you were like, oh, when I'm busy, I tend to not drink. So maybe that's the solution kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. For sure. And I've always been like a pretty and like kind of coming back to what we talked about earlier from like growing up and stuff and, you know, the things that happened to me there, like I've always been pretty resilient. Like I, I always like bounce back, you know what I mean? Like I might like hit those rock bottoms. I'm like, all right, I'm change it. Turn around and do better. You know, I have a hard question. What did your mom say like that time when she picked you up or what were the type of conversations that she was having with you as you shared or did she ever know that you were having these moments? Yeah, so that was hard. So prior to this year when I quit drinking, she didn't give me a whole lot in that area in terms of like advice and and stuff like that. And I really now in hindsight, because now we're pretty open about it. Now I'll talk to her like, you know, now that I'm like eight months over, if I'm having a hard time or advice, we, we she's like one of my go-to people. And I just think she really saw that I wasn't there yet. I think she really understood that like I wasn't at the point where I was ready to do a life without alcohol. And I think she felt guilty about pressing that on me in any way because of like what had happened, you know? But yeah, that ride home was pretty quiet. Like I remember like, I, I almost like cried. I almost broke down. I was like, mom, I don't know what to do. Like I'm out of money. I'm lost. She's like, she's like, she's like, gotta deal with it. She's kind of like, I wouldn't call her a hard woman, but she's like, no, she's, she's pretty stern. You know what I mean? She's not going to like give you a hug and say, it's going to be better. She's like, no, like you need to buck up. Like you need to figure this out. You need to do a better job. 
but at that point, again, started turning around. I, I fought again, which is cool. I hadn't fought in a couple of years. So that was always like kind of a bounce back for me. And yeah, so I got into the, the, I took the classes I needed for the teaching certification. I took the exams I needed to take. I also met my girlfriend who I'm with now. We've been together for a few years and which was obviously, you know, a good thing. I was able to make a relationship through this problem, which is good. And yeah, and then what really led to me quitting drinking is I had like three bad experiences in a row. The first experience was I went to the gym and from work and I was always go to the gym straight from work and I had like a rough day at work and I wanted to go get a couple of drinks and I just kind of forced myself to the gym and I tweaked my back and I was like, you know, screw this. I just like threw the weights down and I went to like the nearest bar and just kind of like, you know, I'd always drink really fast. So I crushed like four or five like IPA beers in like an hour. I got a deuce. I went to my girlfriend's house and she's like arguing with me, like trying to take the bottle away. You know what I mean? And then a week later, we went up to Lake George for her friend's thing. And I just got too drunk. And it was weird. Like towards the end of my drinking too, I just really, I would get really quiet. I would get really withdrawn. I wasn't like kind of that stereotypical, like loud, obnoxious drunk. Like I would just want to be by myself and just drink. You know, I, I came for that. And um, we were out with our friends and it was cold out and I didn't want to be outside. And I just kept saying like, I want to leave. And we went up there for her, like for her friends and for her thing. And then I just left. Like I didn't tell her. I remember like, it, it's like in and out. It's sketchy, but I remember like leaving like we were going from one bar to the other and I just like left to walk home and she had to like run me down, chase me down and I ruined her night. And, um, you know, she doesn't ask for a lot. She's a very easygoing, like easy to please person, you know, and this was like one thing, like her friends are important to her and I kind of embarrassed myself in front of them a little bit and, mm-hmm. and that, you know, that wasn't great. And then I had something similar happen like a week later where I was like, and then I was like, okay, I'm like something's got to budge here. Like something's got to change. So this was, this was like a month before I quit drinking. So at that point, I kind of realized I needed to do something, but I couldn't make that leap. So I, I, it, was, it was too too much. You know, it, it was too big uh, an ambition, I think, at the time to quit drinking. So I just, I don't know, I took a step back. and was like, okay, I'm like, can I just like see a life without alcohol? Can I just like try to and picture and envision like what my life without alcohol would look like? So I tried to do that. I got into some of the quit lit. I had gone to a few, I probably should touch on this. I went to a few AA meetings like prior to that, like in 2017, towards the end of my master's program. But it, it was, it, it was like kind of a fleeting thing. I, I went to a couple and then I stopped, you know, so the writing was on the wall. Then. But after these instances, I was really like, okay, like I need to like figure something out. So I read The Easy Way to Stop Drinking by Alan Carr, which helped me a lot. I, I got it on tape and it's weird when you get books on tape, I feel like you don't take them in as well when you read them. But I listened to that like three times to really get it to take. And then I had a vacation and then I had some friends coming into town. So I wasn't ready to stop yet with those two things happening. But yeah, then after those two things, I remember the last time I drank was when some friends came into New York from Buffalo, some college friends, and that was it. I got into smart recovery. And then eight months later, I'm, I'm on an interview with you, which is pretty great. I love hearing these kinds of stories. I mean, everyone is unique, but it sounds like you already had made an intention or a plan and you were like, I have friends, like you knew the moment was going to arrive. And I, some people have to just get, get sober the next day after shit hits the fan and they have an intense rock bottom moment. You know, every journey is different, but I feel like you were kind of able to chart that intention out and knew you were going to end up here regardless, or that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, I think so. One thing that helped me out a lot was to take a step back and just look at it really objectively, objectively, you know, like look at me and my drinking habits. Like I'm someone I don't know. 
You know what I mean? And then just kind of go through the checklist. Like, okay, I have like the genetic predisposition to this. I have the childhood trauma, like in abundance. And then just like some of my drinking habits, like I tend to drink really, really fast. I almost always black out. I prefer to drink by myself. I've had, you know, some issues with other drugs. So it just, you know, it just all pointed to stop. Yeah, I like what you're saying about seeing your case objectively. Sometimes I'm not ready to see what's what's obvious in my case, but I, it sounds like that resilience that you mentioned you have where you just go all in and once you make a decision, you follow through. It's followed you on this journey as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, it's been, you know, a rocky eight months. You know, it's a weird time to quit drinking for sure. But yeah, I've kind of taken that same approach a little bit to to dealing with like the cravings and the urges and stuff like that. Like I look at, well, not the same, but that's, I'm not saying that well. I try to look at like the cravings and stuff like that and like having a hard time, like getting through sobriety. I try and like build that resilience as well. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. Like when I get an urge or a craving, like I'm okay. Like if I get through this, then I'm going to be like that much better the next time something like this creeps up. That's, you know what I mean? And that's just, a, yeah. a, a micro example of what's happening at a large scale with COVID. Like the fact that you, anyone who's getting their year one, their day one, even even periods of time that aren't extended that is attempting sobriety this year, in my mind, it, they have all my respect because it's a hard time to stay sober, like you said. But I, but I think there are two sides of that as well. And you're going to build double the confidence that if you got sober on a regular year. And that's just my my two cents, but I think it's, it's really neat and, and more power to you guys who this is, you're still early. I mean, I'm still early. I'll be two years here soon. And I'm like, yeah, like if we can do this year without drinking, bring it on, you know, it's empowering. No, a hundred percent. And I knew too, like, I think it kind of worked for me in a sense. Cause just literally like I quit like two weeks before lockdown started pretty much. And, you know, I'm a teacher and they shut down school. So I'm like, oh, this is heavy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is serious. What's going on? And I just knew in the back of my head, I'm like, if I pick up, like if I have a drink, then I'm, it's going to be bad. I knew that it would, my drinking would probably be worse than it was. And I would really just like swim through the quarantine and everything, you know? So I'm really happy that I was able to like make it through that initial period. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the recommendations across the board for early sobriety are linked or related to routine and having a predictable day to day. And, and I do think we need to restructure our days when we start on this journey. <laughs> and with everything happening this year, it's like we're having to adapt to changes. And especially with you and your job, you know, you're going to have to do Zoom calls or in person, in person. I, I don't know, like all of the things that were just changing day after day, there was not that much routine. Yeah, you had to make it for yourself. You know what I mean? That's kind of what I did. Like I dove into my training. So when when COVID first hit, I was like, all right, I'm going to train to fight. You know, so I got some kettlebells, I got a punching bag, which were very hard to get. <laughs> I had to really search for that stuff because, you know, all the fitness stuff was getting uh, snatched up like mad, like really quickly. But yeah, I started doing two days, like I would do my strength and conditioning in the morning and I would do my boxing workout at night. So I just really got into that. I have a pretty structured morning routine now. So I wake up, I do a little bit of yoga. I have an infrared sauna that I sit in for like 15 minutes while I meditate. And then I take a cold shower and try to like, you know, kind of map out my day. Like, okay, what needs to get done today? What, and kind of map out my uh, priorities and stuff. 
So the routine is huge. The ru- and the routine is, is big. And that's something that gave me confidence initially because I felt like I already did a lot of things that people in recovery do, like things that people in recovery start to kind of, you know, get a new routine and, and make a new habit. I did already, like, you know, I already touched on, like, I work out all the time. I meditate. I I eat well. I, I prioritize my sleep. Like, I already did a lot of these things that people adopt in recovery. So that gave me a little bit of a leg up, I think. So you already did a lot of that. But my question is, did it get better? Like how much how much better did your training get once you stopped drinking? I don't know about you, but I felt a complete difference in how I was performance, like performing athletically once I quit drinking. It felt so much better and it was so much more enjoyable than sweating off the booze. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's again, that's one of my biggest drivers. Like I really saw how much I was leaving on the table. You know, I really like I ran an ultra marathon in the summer. So that's 32 miles. And I'm on my way to a 500 pound deadlift that I'm hoping to get by. I want to get that within my first year. So I want to get that by February, the end of February of 2021. But yeah, and I really realized how much I was leaving on the table. And this is something I wanted to talk about because I always had the attitude of like, I'm going to train harder than I party. That was always my thing. I'm like in college all the way up till pretty much when I quit, I was like, if I do 20 shots, I'm going to go run 21 miles the next day. Mm. Like I'm always going to train harder than I party. Right. And then, you know, I'm a personal trainer and I'm a physical education teacher. So through learning about how the body works a little more and understanding physiology and stress and things like that, I realized how terrible and awful that is for you. Just because, you know, when you drink, you're, you're putting a stress on your body, obviously, right? When you drink, you're putting a stress on your body you're getting terrible, terrible sleep, right? So I'm, I'm putting myself through that. And then I'm waking up and I'm introducing more stress in the form of exercise, but I'm not in the state to recover and adapt properly to the good stress of exercise because mm-hmm. I'm messed up from the bad stress of drinking, right? So it's like, you're not, you're not getting the outcomes. Like I tell my clients and all the time, like you don't get stronger in the gym. Like when you walk into it, when you walk out of a gym, you're in worse shape than when you walked in, you get stronger and fitter, whatever it is from eating the right foods and getting a good night's sleep and managing your stress. Well, you know, so when, when that revelation kind of happened for me, when I realized just how bad that was for my body and, you know, I just turned 30. So I was getting a little bit older, you know, you can't get away with it as much. That was like kind of a turning point for me, too, because that's always been my thing. And I don't want to like hinder my performance in that arena. You know, I really contribute my drinking to to why I didn't do more in boxing. You know, I've, I've been doing it since I was a kid. and I only have like five fights, you know, and I don't want to boast like I'm not I'm, I try to be a pretty humble person, but I'm skillfully. I'm pretty good. You know, I've, I've been doing it a long time. And, you know, I just feel like I didn't realize my potential because of drinking a little bit. You know, like if, if there was a show fight coming up that I wanted to do. A lot of times be like, all right, this is in two months, like I'll quit drinking like a month before and then I'll get after it. And then it would be like three weeks out and I'd be like, oh, well, I'll give myself two weeks. And then it'll be like two weeks before and I'd be like, oh, well, I'm not ready. I'll, I'll do the next one. You know, I love um, that you that you talk about how you notice tangibly how it was hindering your performance. And, and the cool thing about this, I I'm a fitness enthusiast like you. I'm not an expert like yourself, but I really enjoy working out and. I know not everyone relates to that. I always try to prescribe it because I think it really also helps our brain and our chemistry and what's happening inside of our bodies, not just in our muscles. However, I feel like this hindering of hindering of inspiration, you know, if you're a writer, this applies to everything. You know, you are just affecting 
and taking away time from things that are part of your enjoyment and that your potential is being hindered. And it's really neat to discover that once you remove the alcohol and the drugs, possibilities are endless. Like you're going to tackle these big milestones and goals that you have. And then you're just going to go to the next thing, to the next race, to the next weight. And that's really cool. That's really motivating to me at least. Yeah. And I think I'm lucky that fitness is my thing. Whereas like, I think that's definitely the case for like a musician or a writer or an artist, like something like that. But you know, I think drugs and alcohol tend to be tied into that stuff more as like, you know, it gets you into this state. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's more of like, like a misconception. Yes. You know what I mean? Whereas with fitness, it's pretty black and white. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you're drinking or if you're, if you're going out, like it's going to hinder your performance. Yeah, you're right. A lot of artists uh, romanticize alcohol and how they get inspired when they're drinking. And, and I think it works until it doesn't, right? I think it adds and then it starts sub- subtracting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, with, with fitness, you, you just know it's not your body's not going to work the same. So that's really cool. Yeah. Do you work with people in recovery as well or just across the board, people who want fitness guidance? Pretty much across the board, but I'm trying to make working with people in recovery like a, a big arm of my business. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to get in touch with that population for a couple of reasons, just because like in fitness, like in anything else, you really have to niche down. You know what I mean? You really have to like, you know, get a real clear, specific picture of your target audience. Like if you're for everybody, you're going to get no one. Right. So I really want to start to train and start working with more people in recovery, which is something I'm hoping to do with my space more. I want to start to reach out to like the AA community in New York. I do smart recovery. So smart recovery in New York and try to open up my space to people in recovery. I train a few people remotely from Cafe RE that I met through doing the fitness webinar I did, which has been pretty cool. And and to see like a real, they're, they're really vocal about how it's like helped them, which is like really awesome. And I think that's another thing you should pursue with what you do. Like, like I'm lucky enough to do what I love to do. Like I'm, I'm a personal trainer, physical education teacher. So I'm lucky enough to, you know, I do the fitness stuff for work, which is a real blessing. But even with that, you know, try to train the people I really care about that I want to help which is obviously people in recovery, given my own personal experience and things I've, you know, seen through my parents. You know, I also train a lot of kids, obviously, being a gym teacher. And I think that kind of comes back to my childhood since I didn't have the best one. I think that's why I like to work with kids and, you know, try to be like, you know, a positive influence in their life. So, so yeah, so I train people across the board, but I try, I'm trying to focus on um, people in recovery and training kids. That's cool. I, I think just because I'm a parent as well, too, I, I try to think of prevention a lot of the times or my my thought process on helping people is very present with like our listeners and our audience and people in our groups who were all adults. But then lately, I've just been thinking, we got to We got to teach kids. This is this is something we can prevent. So how do we prevent? What can we teach them? What skills? What can we talk about? What can we address? What stigma can we shred? Because, I mean, it's so important. All of these messages that we are delivering to kids and how they're going to develop as adults. So I think that's really cool that you can be their mentor and their role model. Thanks. I'm trying. You know, it's uh, it's hard in school now. It's it's rough, you know, like I, I got to take their temperatures when they come in. We, I got to, you know, make sure they have the mask on and they're maintaining the distance. And I only have half a period with them because so the way it works in the DOE right now in New York is cluster teachers. So like myself doing gym, like science and, and music and that kind of stuff. We're covering the lunches just because like lunch aides aren't supposed to do it during certain, it's just, it's like a weird thing with the contract. So like we cover the lunches. So 
I only have 20 minutes with them. And obviously my activities are very limited. You know, I try to get creative with it, but there's only so much you can do with six feet of space. Yeah. And I'm also like wary of, yeah. And I'm also like concerned about doing anything too demanding cardiovascular wise. Cause I have, I have worries about the repercussions for their respiratory system through training and exercising with the mask on. So I, yeah, I try to hit like the social emotional point a little bit, but you do what you can, you know, like I make a point, like when the kids are eating lunch, I walk up to every single kid and I ask them like, Oh, how's your day? How's your weekend? What do you have for lunch? Try to make a joke and make them laugh. And yeah, you just do what you can. That's cool. Tell me, Paul, what do you do when you get a trigger or a craving? So like I said, I try really hard to turn it on its head a little bit. So I try to look at a craving when I have a really, if I have like a really bad one, I'll look at it and be like, okay, like if I get through this, I'm going to be that much more capable of dealing with the next one. So kind of like I'm building that muscle. So it kind of comes back to like my, my fitness background and stuff like that. That's been my main thing recently. Community's huge. I've, I'm a little guilty of falling off meetings or anything in a while, but Cafe RE really helped me a lot. Like I was having a rough time of it, like three to four months in just when things were kind of starting to open up from quarantine, I went home. I went home to Long Island for some family events and, you know, everybody's drinking. And then that was my first experience with that. And that was hard. I was close to, to kind of caving in there. My girlfriend kind of talked me out of it. And yeah, and I just got to a point where it, it just like kind of consumed me. You know what I mean? Like I was at, I was at these family parties and I wasn't enjoying anybody's company. I wasn't having any conversations. I was just worried about not drinking. And which I found out is I forget the term of it, but that, that's like kind of a common thing. But yeah, but after that, I kind of shifted my perspective on it. Like I kind of took a passive approach at first. Because again, like I touched on earlier, I do a lot of things people in recovery tend to adopt. So I didn't dive into the communities that much. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do my one smart recovery meeting a week and I'm going to leave it at that. But after that weekend, I realized I really needed, I, I needed to surround myself with people who were on the same page as me. So I joined Cafe RE. I started going to like three or four meetings a week and, um, and helped build my accountability. So that, that's been big, cafe area and finding, finding other people. Also, too, just like looking at the upside, like I've, I've, I get so many nicer moments now. You know, I like, like I enjoy, like I appreciate the nice weather outside or like things that happen at work. Like if like, a, you know, something cute happens with a kid or something like that. Like I just have so much more of an appreciation for those little things. And I'll try to come back to that. Um, also, just realizing, too, that it's like, while it's not like an easy thing, it's like the simple thing. You know, like, it's definitely not easy to quit drinking, but it's simple. It's like, okay, I don't have a drink. And that's it. I know if I start drinking, like, I was really flirting with moderating for, like, you know, three or four months in. And then I was at a smart meeting, and I was talking about it. And one guy was like, listen, like, I, I did that, and I see where you're coming from. But if you think your mind is consumed by not drinking, it's 10 times worse when you're moderating. Because it's like, okay, I can have three drinks every other Wednesday. And then I'm going to drink two glasses of water and then I can have one more, you know, you're going to make all these like crazy, like rules and, and, mm -hmm. and, and things for yourself where it's just simple, just like, okay, don't drink and that's it. Yes. I, I heard this once and I've mentioned it on the show, how it's like a mathematical equation. So like you said, I love how you said it, not easy, but simple. If you choose not to drink, it's like you grab the dry eraser, the dry marker eraser and just delete all of the equation on the board 
Whereas yeah. if you attempt to flirt with moderation or stay drinking, even just managing your drinking is like going back and grabbing that marker and like, okay, this equals this and how much. And it's just so mentally draining and consuming. So I'm glad you even had that conversation at the meeting, because for me, it took someone saying that to be like, that's right. Like it was already so obsessive and all of the thoughts and all of the thinkings that it was robbing, robbing me from exactly what you were saying that you appreciate now, which is those little moments and that simplicity of just enjoying the experience versus thinking about that equation and being stuck in our heads. So I love that. Yeah, I've never heard that math equation uh, analogy. That's really funny. I like that. I like that too. All right, Paul, well, we've reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I'm ready. Perfect. What would you say to your younger self if you could talk to him today? You're going to be good. You know, just just take what life throws at you, take it on the chin and just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward. You're going to be good. What has recovery made possible for you? Like, like I said before, finding more joy, just like enjoying the nicer moments. Like, I don't really feel like I understood what the word joy really meant. And until so I got in recovery and got sober. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Do fitness instructors also Ooh. eat ice cream? <laughs> oh, I eat more ice cream than anybody I know. Prob- probably chocolate chip cookie dough. What are you excited about right now? What possibilities in life have you motivated? My business, really, you know, it's been, it's been heavy. It's been a lot of work trying to open up with, um, also obviously with teaching full time, I'm working seven day weeks, but you know, it, it's got me really excited. I think like we kind of touched upon like, you know, this really bad thing happened with COVID, but that's going to kind of, you got to adapt to that. It's going to change how a lot of things happen. And I think, especially with fitness, you know, I think people are going to train differently. So I'm, I'm really trying to, to get at that, to hit that nail on the head, you know? So like, I'm really excited for my business and, uh, and where it could go in, in the coming months. That's exciting. I think you're going to be really busy. So I'm excited to touch base with you. Later. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> what, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I think what I touched on earlier, just like try to see a life without it before you really commit to it. Because if, if you make if you make your ideal or your judge too high, you're, you're going to crumble, you know, so if, if quitting drinking seems so like monumental to you, and there's no way it could happen, be like, okay, take a step back. Like, could you picture a life without drinking? Could you not even do that? Okay, could you like, could you see a month without it? Could you try to quit drinking for even a day? You know what I mean? Like, inc- incremental improvement goes a long way. You know, that's, that's something I've liked about this podcast is that, like I know Paul and you have touched on, like, think about like time in sobriety, you know what I mean? So if you just start to like, turn that dial little bit by little bit, like you don't have to just jump off the ship, you know, it can be like small incremental steps towards sobriety can compound and really make a huge difference over time. I 100% agree. And I, I never even followed up. But I, what your mom did and not pushing you is kind of what we try to do as well. You know, everyone's on their own timeline. And even in thinking about not drinking, even in listening to the show, everything adds up. So thanks for that advice. I love it. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line? Absolutely. Uh, You may have to say adios to the booze if you have to drink a six pack before you go to a bartending shift (laughs) or if you lose your car. I've lost my car before a few times. So either of those. Thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed chatting with you and I can't wait to share this with everyone. Awesome, Odette. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. You too. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. 
And if you're interested in seeing more of Paul's journey and how fitness is a part of his recovery, check out his Instagram account at recoveryfit1. That's recoveryfit1. I love following him on Instagram. So check it out if you enjoyed this episode. And before I say adios, I want to remind you all that this can only feel like an opportunity if you reframe and shift your mindset. This month, I continue to be inspired by Pema Chodron's new book, Welcoming the Unwelcome. And I recently was very moved by a chapter that I read that was talking about labels. How we label things directly affects our experiences. If you keep labeling this journey as hard, boring, lifeless, and unappealing, it will only continue to be that. And if we choose to see things differently, they automatically become different. Let this journey back home be full of fun, mysteries, and new discoveries. Your life is waiting. Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, this path brought me to you, and that is the biggest gift. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. It can't be thought. Your inner purpose is to awaken.